1 Timothy. And um, we did 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 a little bit. The last time we met, we're going to kind of do an overview. But this time I've, I've brought some more extensive notes of mine. And so we'll be looking at that um, also. I want us to make sure this is such an important chapter, uh, not just for young ministers, but for everyone who is serving Christ. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read. Father, thank you for this day. And I pray, dear God, that you would use your word to help your people. Oh, dear God, please. Please teach them. Please. Oh God, we are in such need of you. We are in such need that you would move among the nations. Lord Jesus, we are in such need that you extend your sovereign hand and take the gift that your Father has given you. Every people group, every tribe, every language, every nation. And Father, I pray for France, Quebec, and the French-speaking countries of this world. Oh, dear God, do a work. Do a work. Answer the prayers of so many, Lord, who have cried out that the French-speaking peoples of the world would come to know you and be a light among the nations. Dear God, please help us today in this teaching. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's uh, read verse one and let's start from there. And um, again, I really hope and pray that God will use this, that he will use it not only for our sakes, but for anyone who hears this. So in verse one of first Timothy chapter four, but the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. The first thing I want you to understand is that this is written by an apostle and has the weight uh, of that. This is not some prediction from some psychic. This is not just an opinion. We're going to see that this comes from an apostle, but an apostle that is being moved by the spirit. Now, it says that the spirit explicitly says that it's expressed in words, that he speaks in a specific manner. When the spirit revealed this to Paul, he, the spirit was not revealing just generalities. That something may happen in the future or the future may be difficult. It's an absolute certainty that in the last days there would be difficulty. Now, I want you to understand something very, very important. You probably already know this, but in the latter times, it is a reference from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. From his incarnation, life, death and resurrection up until he returns. Those are the last days. We can also see that in Joel, when Paul, when Peter quotes Joel in chapter two of the book of Acts that the last days began with the first coming of Messiah. And so difficult times will be going on throughout that entire time. Think of it as uh, in the language that some of the old preachers used to use, a time of the Messiah's troubles, when the Messiah would go to battle. And I do believe that he's going to battle. I believe that he's going forth conquering and I believe that he uses men like us to do that conquering through the preaching of the gospel. So this is a specific message from the Holy Spirit through an apostle. And we can count on it. Therefore, guys, when trouble happens, when trouble comes, you shouldn't think it's unusual. You should almost expect it. And you should take it. You should you should realize that if you're in the ministry, this trouble is going to come, so you need to prepare yourself beforehand. And how do you prepare yourself beforehand? You prepare yourself beforehand by the disciplines of the means of grace. Most men of God spend too little time in Scripture feeding their own soul. They spend too little time in prayer 
drawing upon the strength of the Holy Spirit. And I want to remind you, I want to remind you something that I think is being lost, especially in reform circles. It's not enough just to be doctrinally correct. That is not enough. You and I should be calling out constantly for greater and greater manifestations of the Spirit's life and power in us. Life that we might be like Christ. Power that we might preach with authority for the edification of the church and for a harvest of souls. I wish that young men, particularly young men like you, would see the absolute impossibility of the task that is set before you. For you to walk as Christ, for you to preach with power, for the harvesting of souls is an absolute impossibility and you need to feel it down into the very depths of your soul. And you need to be constantly recognizing your inadequacy in yourself and the, the, and the sufficiency of the power of the Holy Spirit, the sufficiency of Scripture, clinging to the wisdom of Scripture, being afraid to proclaim anything other than Scripture, and constantly crying out for the Spirit's aid, for His empowering, for His unction, whatever you want to call it. You need the life and power of the Spirit. Now, I think there's something very important here uh, that I've got down in my notes, and that is, it is a comfort for me, and it should be a comfort for you that Paul warns us in this way. Isn't it amazing that this trouble that we're going to pass through as a church in the years to come and the trouble that each one of you will pass through individually, it is absolutely no surprise to God. I mean, if, if he hadn't warned us of this, we, we might have become afraid. Did God not know? Is God not in control? But because he warned us, we know he's in control. We know this is filtered through his providence. We know this is a part of his plan. You know, I'm in my 60s now. And uh, man, 40 years in February, 40 years. And, and you know you would think that it would be a time for no more battles. And yet, the battles keep getting more difficult, more difficult, and more difficult. Now, you can say that's because, you know, pressing on, trying to win the world for Christ. Well, that's part of it, but that's not the bigger part. You see, God loves you men so much that he's not going to allow you to remain as you are. He's not going to allow those weaknesses to continue. You know, the old, uh, well, not old, but the, the songwriter Keith Green, you know, that song that he would always sing to his, his child. My son, I am weak and I'm trembling. For the Lord, I am always remembering. What a strong shepherd holds you in his arms. He will break you and make you his own. Now, here's something that I want to share with you. When you're seeking to advance the kingdom, you're going to be in the devil's uh, crosshairs. He's going to come after you with everything he's got. Now, if you want an easy life, I think you pretty much have a choice. You can back down and he'll leave you alone. I honestly believe that. You can basically adopt the attitude, I won't bother you, so you don't bother me. There's another thing. You can say to God, God, I'm tired. I don't want any more trials. I don't want any more difficulties. But what you're actually saying is, I've reached the limit of my desire for being Christ-like. It's not worth it anymore. I'm just too tired. I don't want to improve. I don't want to become more like Christ. Just take your hand off me and let me rest. Do you see? Now, I know these things because I myself have had to deal with them in my own heart. 
I feel like most of the marks of age on me are not the marks of age as much as they're the marks of battle. So back up if you want. But backing up has no eternal value, no eternal value at all. So it's a comfort. He tells us, get ready, buckle up. I had to have a procedure um, a few months ago that was supposed to help with the pain in my body. And when they, uh, when they started funneling that wire up my spine, I remember the doctor said, prepare yourself for a little bit of pressure. <laughs> well, I can tell you this, it was more than pressure that I needed to prepare myself for. And that's the same way with you. Now, another thing, here's a, you know, we always think of apostasy, which is what he's talking about here. We think of apostasy in a negative manner, and it most certainly is negative, that is for sure. But I want you to also see that there is a purpose even for apostasy. And what does it do? Division acts as a compress to draw the poison out of the church and confine it to a specific area. Now, what do I mean? In the olden days, when someone had poison or venom or infection on a part of their hand, they would put a, a soft, moist, warm cloth or something like a compress in hopes of drawing out the venom. Now, I want you to think about something. You know that there are so many marginal Christian groups and fringe Christian groups and cults and everything. Here's what you need to understand. Man, by and large, is religious. How would you like all those groups that have turned away from Christianity, that are on the margins of, you know, speaking Christ, but teaching contrary doctrine and living a contrary ethic? How would you like for all those people to be in your church? It would make it impossible, wouldn't it? Sometimes I, I honestly believe, now this is my opinion, that God will allow a man to be raised up. Come heretical and very popular. And draw out from his church. The apostate. Draw out the venom, draw out those who would cause division and do doctrinal and ethical harm to God's people. And so it has a purpose in first John. 219, John says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown they are not of us. They are not all of us. And in 1 Corinthians 11:19, listen to what Paul says. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. And so even though apostasy, especially global apostasy, is a terrible thing, at the same time, God is able to use it in some way to pull the venom out of his church, to pull the wolves out of his church, and to bring health and safety to those who remain. Now, he says, in the latter times, some will fall away. Now, I think what's important here is that is that this is important, that you need to recognize this truth, because when it says the spirit explicitly says. It's in present tense, the spirit is saying over and over and over again that apostasy is going to come. Maybe it was very, very possible that especially a lot of the Jewish believers may have believed that now that Messiah has come, we're going to preach and there's going to be triumph and the whole world's going to be converted. Or at least all of Israel's going to be converted. And Paul is saying, no, over and over, the spirit is saying the same thing. Apostasy is going to come. Now, I want us to see something else that I missed here. But I want to go back. If you look in verse 16 of chapter three. He says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. 
He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about the gospel. And what is he saying about the gospel? It is the greatest redemptive work of God. It is the thing. And then immediately in verse one, he says, but. So what he's saying is, even though Messiah has been revealed, even though the gospel has been accomplished, redemption has been accomplished, even though this great work, greatest work of God has occurred. Prepare yourself. Battle's going to come. In the book of Revelation, it says that Satan knows that his time is short. His wrath is great. His wrath is great. Now, he says that in latter times, some will fall away. When he says here in, um, in verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. What he's saying is that apostasy in his time was a clear and present danger. In our time, it is a clear and present danger. But there's one thing that I want you to see. There's apostasy in the macro and in the micro. There's apostasy in the world. But there can be apostasy in the church. That doesn't mean that Christians can become apostate. But it does mean that within those who profess faith in Christ, great apostasy can occur because not all those who claim Christ belong to Christ. But there's something else I want you to see. Brothers. If you think that you're going to fight your inward spiritual battles in your younger years. And that somehow it's all going to go away. You're going to find out that's not true. I think our danger becomes greater and greater as we become older and older. I think that the fight is a constant fight until the day we're called home through death. I think that you and I need to constantly be watching over our hearts for fear of apostasy. Maybe not in its most dramatic form, but certainly an apathy and an apathy can lead to apostasy. Guard your heart, guard your heart, nurture your own soul. You know, what is the greatest need of my wife, humanly speaking? <sighs> that I would be a better husband. She needs me to be a better husband. My sons and daughters need me to be a better father. The church, what's one of the greatest gifts I can give to the church? A better version of me, a more Christ-like version of me. If you want to help your church, if you want to help the kingdom, if you want to help the people around you, the greatest thing you can do is become more like Christ. Because it is your lack of Christ-likeness and mine that will do the greatest deal of damage. So don't just think of apostasy always as something outside, something outside. See it as a clear and present danger inside, in your heart. Now, I want to read something that I have here. History proves that apart from revival in the West, things will get worse before they get better. I would not be surprised if we end our lives in prison. I want you to think about that. I just found out that a dear friend of mine has been basically imprisoned in China. Now, they don't call it that, but it's exactly what it is. We all may end up there. If there isn't revival in the West, we can almost be assured that we're going to end up there. But here's what I want to say to you that is so important. If we have difficulty standing now, when times are favorable to us, how will we stand when persecution comes? I mean, if, if you're just struggling with the Internet. And you're falling. What's going to happen when freedom or imprisonment is set before you? Or life 
or death or the keeping of your children or the losing of your children. How are you going to stand then? Do you see? That's why, look, I have been in situations that were terrifying and I know at that moment that God's grace strengthened me and I was able to overcome. Now that's a beautiful, beautiful thing, but we should never presume upon it. We should never say, no, I'm not going to prepare myself. I don't need to grow stronger in the word. I don't need to become stronger in faith. You know, at that time, God's going to step in and do something. Well, God does step in and do something, but we are not allowed to presume upon that. We need to be strong men, not strong in a carnal way, not muscles or or just even this type of, you know, superhero strength. No, we need to be strong men and that we stand fast upon the word, even when we're trembling. Uh, Jeremiah 12, 5 is a is a verse that. So often um, I think about when I'm having, you know, big struggles over tiny matters. <laughs> uh, it says, if you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? If you can't run when it's easy, how are you going to run when it's hard? Prepare yourself now. Prepare for battle. You know, you could put two fighters together, one obviously better than the other. But if one of the, if that weaker one has a better training camp, he's probably going to win. He's probably going to win. How much investment are you making in yourself to prepare yourself for battle? And how much investment are you making in your own churches through your sermons? Are you preparing your people, the people with whom God has entrusted, to whom God has entrusted you? Are you preparing them to stand against the difficulties that come now? He says here that in latter times, some will fall away. They will apostatize. They will depart from the faith or stand aloof, stand far away from true doctrine. But here's one of the problems, one of the great problems that we have today. In most churches, people can commit apostasy and no one even recognizes it. Do you realize that? You know, it's true. That in the in the essentials of the Christian faith, in the essentials of Christian doctrine, there should be unity in the non-essentials. We should practice a great deal of grace. That's true. But here's the problem. Every year, the essential list gets smaller and the non-essential list gets bigger. I mean, it is phenomenal what's going on. That doctrine and theology is almost beca they've become ugly words and considered the, the great enemies of unity. Now, brothers, we need to love. And there are people who differ with me in some matters of faith, and I recognize that they love Christ far more than I do. So I am not going to battle with true brothers and sisters in Christ. I may seek to teach them. I may admonish them, but I'm going to love them. But today we've got a thing where even apostasy is tolerated, not only in the churches at home, but also among missionaries on the mission field. Never forget, if you ever remove the scandal of the exclusivity of the gospel, you have lost the gospel and you have lost your own soul. Never forget that. Never forget it. It's so very, very important because right now the term evangelical basically means nothing. Basically means nothing. The term is supposed to refer not to politically conservative people, but to biblically conservative people, people who believe the Bible and love the gospel. Now, look what it says here. But the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention 
to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, anytime I mention things like the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, anytime I mention the antithesis, the satanic, the demonic, you know, it's almost like people, well, is he charismatic? <laughs> I'm Reformed Baptist. I am not charismatic. Uh, but here's what you've got to see. Um, I can't allow the false doctrine of some groups to cause me to have false doctrine on the other extreme. The Bible, basically, you, you, you have no part with God if you're afraid to talk about the Holy Spirit. You have no power in ministry if it's not the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to get out of the out of the ministry if you no longer believe in the supernatural. And you also need to realize not only is there a God, there's a devil, a real personal devil. Who is working on this planet within with a horde without number of demons and other things that are working with him to thwart the kingdom of of heaven, to do destruction to God's people, to mar the name of Christ. It is so obvious now that I don't know how, in the name of intellectualism, reform guys spend their time so much denying these things. Brothers, we live in a supernatural world and the supernatural world is more real than the natural one. And we've got to realize that we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities and mights and dominions. You are fighting with forces that apart from the protective grace of God would swallow you and your family in a millisecond. You are not doing battle simply against radically depraved human beings. You are doing battle against the forces of hell. And you also need to know that those forces of hell in some places in the world, they manifest themselves in extraordinary fashion. But the primary weapon of the devil is lying and he doesn't lie just about superficial things. He lies about truth, about doctrine. Because if he can turn your doctrine, if he can get you to doubt or misunderstand what God has said, he's won the day. And that's why he says doctrines of demons. And later on, we're going to see that the primary way you recognize these doctrine of demons is that they take the emphasis off of Jesus Christ. Always taking the emphasis off of Jesus Christ and laying it upon man or at least some lesser creature. And we'll see that in a minute. I want to read this. It is not a natural wickedness and cannot be fought in a natural way. This is one of the reasons for purity in the pulpit and the shunning of Saul's armor. Now, what do I mean? First of all, The best of men are men at best. Please understand that. There's too much hero worship today. My goodness, it, it's, it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. Even when we come to the apostles, if we will read the New Testament correctly, we see weak men. We see nothing but Gideons. There has never been a great man of God, just weak, pitiful men and unbelieving men of a great and merciful God. And that's all there will ever be. And yet, there is a distinction between those who become lackadaisical with regard to holiness and those who press on to know the Lord and to be like his son. Please understand me here. Men, you have got to guard your hearts. You've got to guard your mind. And know this, it's a slippery slope. 
The devil is very, very patient. If he were to present something before your eyes that was a gross abomination, you would turn away immediately. He's not going to do that. He's going to whittle away one peck at a time. Getting you to become more and more and more accepting until before you even recognize it, you're swallowing abominations. He's always going to whittle away. We see that even in the garden. Has God said? God did not say. Just a pinch here and a tuck here pulls you one step closer every so many days. And before you know it, you've traveled a mile. Why is holiness important? So that we can, you know, walk around and beat our chest and say we're holy. Look, I love the law of God. As a believer, I love the law of God interpreted correctly through the gospel, of course, but I love the law of God. I love its wisdom. I love what it tells me about God. But here's what I want to share with you. My obedience isn't motivated by the splendor of the law of God. My obedience is motivated by not wanting to offend the person of God who dwells within me. He's holy. The Holy Father. Holy, holy, holy. The Holy Child, Jesus. The Holy Spirit. Do you see? A person dwells within you. The Holy Spirit and in that person, the father and son dwell within you. It's it's not about at the end of the day, tallying up whether or not you broke some rules. It's did you offend a person? And everything that it is not that is not holy. Is is offensive. And so we need to walk circumspectly. You know, how circumspectly would you and I walk if we had if we knew if Jesus was physically walking with us? I mean, walking with us and talking with us. How circumspectly would you and I act? And yet that's exactly what's going on. What would it be like, you know, when Peter denied him and he turned and looked at Peter? What would it be like if we're walking, you know, through the mall or on a city street and uh, we're encountered with a temptation. Christ is standing right there and we give into that temptation and then we look up and see his face and then he just walks away. You see, we, we want to be holy men. Also, you've got to realize something. People misunderstand when when we when they hear about Jesus overcoming all temptation. They think Jesus was like us. You see, Jesus was perfect. He was holy. He didn't have any wayward lusts. He loved the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength. So when the devil threw a temptation at him, his only response was hatred. There was no bait on the end of that hook that that Jesus desired. He was holy. Paul Washer and you were not like that. We still have something in us, the fallen residue of the fallen humanity. We still have the flesh within us. It battles against us. And we need to crucify it. So that when that hook is thrown out with an immoral bait, we hate it as our Lord hated it. You see, the devil knows that even killing you will not be to his advantage. But to making you and I fall. Now that's to his advantage. So see, it's a double it's a double edged sword by sinning. We lose the joy and power and fellowship of the spirit. And by sinning, we open ourselves up. To the destruction of our own testimonies. And so we need to realize it's not a natural wickedness that's coming against us. It cannot be fought a natural way. It must be fought by holy men. I would prefer to say men who fear the Lord. Another thing that is so very, very important is this. 
you cannot fight spiritual battles with carnal strategies. I, you know, we're coming to the end. I don't, I don't even know what to call it. Uh, sometimes I've referred to it, I, I mean no disrespect, but kind of the, the Bush, President Bush era of evangelicalism is coming to an end. What do I mean by that? A, a kind of Christianity that, you know, is uh, politically conservative and is clean and has a nice haircut and is good for the country and good for everyone and well-respected. We're coming to the end of that. If you're a true Christian, you're hated. If you're a true Christian, you're maligned. You, you'll gain no political advantage. You'll gain no uh, business advantage by becoming a Christian anymore. No, 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 that's gone. Those days are gone. Do you see that? They are gone. So if you bring a football player up on stage during evangelistic crusade for him to give his testimony, that's not going to draw anybody. <laughs> They're just going to hate him when he gets off the stage. Do you see all those strategies that were used, you know, beautiful music and all these other things, all these strategies, none of it's going to work anymore. The only strategy that's going to work is holy people preaching the word of God and living a life of prayer. That's the only strategy that's going to work. A people who love their enemies, a people who do not back up, a people who die for their faith, a people who are willing to be imprisoned and much worse than all of it, a people willing to be slandered and maligned. You know, we hear the used to hear these testimonies all the time. You know, I was I was a loser and I couldn't my business wouldn't do any good or I was no good at sports or this or that. And then I came to know Jesus and everything turned around and now I'm a millionaire and everybody loves me. That was the very opposite of the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul, I believe, uh, if you read. Uh, uh, D. Edmund Hebert on First Thessalonians. When the Apostle Paul walked into Thessalonica and started preaching the gospel, he had just been beaten. I mean, he walked in that city and began to preach. His feet were probably all swollen. He was beaten all over. His body had whelps and bruises, probably bloody. And he gets up and preach and it impacted the people. In what way? They said that they said to themselves, this message must be of God because no one would suffer like this for a lie. Everybody out there selling their messages and trying to prove, you know, that uh, that you'll have a better life if you follow my philosophy. Here is this guy comes into our town and has done nothing all his life but suffer for this message he proclaims. There must be something to it. So it's no longer going to be the draw of you know, uh, of what it was before. The Bush era Christianity evangelicalism is gone. Now it's going to be the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to build the church. And it's going to be the power of expository preaching that's going to build the church. And that's the way it should have been from the beginning. So you men, you need to become men. You need to make a decision and it's not some kind of John Wayne or I said superhero macho type of stuff. That a lot of these restless and reform guys have. It's not getting up in the pulpit and saying swear words. It's not trying to act with some bravado. It's being filled with the word of God and filled with the spirit and preaching the truth and love and refusing to accept Pharaoh's hand. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't lean upon that staff. It will break and pierce you. If you'll just give yourself to the study of God's word, to prayer, to proclamation, and to when you, here's another thing. When you guys preach, stop just walking off the, the platform like you just gave some lecture that doesn't matter. No, when Paul gives the greatest theological lecture in the Bible, Ephesians 1 through 3, 
and Romans 1 through 11. He then says, therefore, in both cases, therefore, I urge you, I beseech you, I plead with you. Walk in a manner worthy. Offer your life as a living sacrifice. You've got to plead with men. Peter Masters is one of the greatest men of our time. I read something that he wrote a while back, and he said, basically, if you're not urging men to repent and believe, you're preaching a false gospel. I see so many of these reform guys, you know, you get up and you you give this wonderful uh, exposition of what the cross means, and then you walk off the platform. That's not preaching. That's not preaching at all. Beg men. Beg men. Well, we kind of got off, didn't we? In, um, in talking about doctrines of demons, Paul describes his battle strategy in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. He says, for though we walk in the flesh. Yeah, you see us just just men, flesh and bone, nothing spectacular here, nothing to see. We do not war according to the flesh. Do you war according to the flesh? You got all kinds of systems and gizmos and gadgets to get people to your church. Went by a church a few years ago and it's free haircuts if you'll come. So Jesus is so undesirable that we got to offer haircuts. No. It says we do not war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. This is demonic fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Remember what I said, when demons fight, they fight with doctrine. They fight against the truth. And Paul says all these speculations and all these proud thoughts of men that have devils behind them, we destroy them. How do you destroy them? With the word of God. There is a lot to be said for apologetics. And sometimes I will listen to good apologists and I marvel at the gift that God has given them. But that apologetic must be firmly based in scripture or it's nothing but a very smart man showing everybody how smart he is. And that's not what we need. And that's not what good apologists do. They use the word of God because the word of man, no matter how eloquent or brilliant or rational, is not going to do anything because you got, you got to realize something, young men. You are no longer dealing with a rational culture. You are dealing with a, a, like a, a bunch of six year old spoiled brats who can't even think. You're not going to argue them to the gospel. It's going to have to be preaching the gospel and the spirit of God is going to draw them or nothing's going to happen. But that's the way it's always been. That's the way it's always been. He says we are destroying speculation. No, no, no. He's not taking prisoners here. No, no, no. Why do you destroy it? For the same reason the Israelites had to destroy the Canaanites. You leave one of them there. They're going to come back and contaminate everything. There are two things that you do not show mercy toward. One of them is sin and the other is speculation because speculation will always give way to sin. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And then he says, and we are taking every thought captive to, to the obedience of Christ. It's not just your outward expression or the outward expression of your congregation. It's the inward thought of the heart. Taking it captive. So many times, and, and I've, I've, I've heard this um, throughout my whole life. The ministry is so difficult. Real ministry is so difficult that sometimes men of God will, will try to lose themselves in daydream. Or they'll try to lose themselves in fantasy of another life. Or they'll try to lose themselves in television or everything, comic books. Because the ministry is difficult. Because the ministry wears on the mind and the heart. But we can't be like that. 
We've got to fight it, and it will be a fight. One of the many things that I appreciate about John Piper is, is his transparency and how he talks about everything being a fight. You're not going to get some sugar-coated Christianity from that man. He has been mightily used of God, but he knows what he is. He's a weak man that must fight for everything. Just like every man. It's just that some men don't recognize it. It is a fight, and it's a fight here and here. Because even if you win on the outside and you do not win on the inside, you are in a world of trouble. Now, let me share something with you I think is, is very, very important. We, we do not recognize just how intricately involved the satanic is in every aspect of life and culture. Um, let me just give you an example. Even people who do not knowingly give way to this, give way to it. Um, for decades, many people have pointed out that every time there is a, a show directed towards youth or children, that almost in every one of those cases, the parents are set forth as buffoons who know nothing and must learn from the children. Now you say, why do you bring that up? Because it is such a wonderful illustration of what I'm talking about. It's the complete reversal of what God said was supposed to be. So it's in every aspect. God created the world. No, it was mindless evolution. And that's, again, going, 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 promoted, promoted, promoted. God said marriage is between a man and a woman. No, it can be between a man and a woman, a woman and a... And a woman, a man, and a man, a dog and a cat. I mean, it's just, it just goes on and on and on. So everything, you just see it. I remember taking a psychology class at the university. And uh, a guy who was discipling me was in the class the hour before me. And he came out and he was kind of smiling. And I mean, this, this man in this class, he hated Christianity. He hated it. He would stand there openly and mock God, mock Christ, mock Christianity. My friend came out as I was going in. He was smiling. I said, what are you smiling about? He goes, I love this class. And I said, what do you mean you love this class? He goes, I love this class. I'm learning so much about a biblical worldview through this class. And I go, brother, what are you saying? He says, no, no, no. Listen to everything this man says. Write it down. And if you do the opposite, you have the scriptures. Now, that's hyperbole, of course, but the point he was making is everything that man says in that room is the complete opposite of what God says. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Everywhere. And do you, you little preacher boy, you honestly think you're going to take this on? You? Well, let me tell you something. You can, but in the power of your God and the power of his word, you take it on. I mean, you know, God's basically kind of declared war and told the devil, not only will I beat you, I will beat you with both hands tied behind my back. And you and I are the two hands tied behind his back. He didn't call us to make his make the job easier. He called us to make it more difficult so that he'd get more glory in the end. We're Gideon's call, brothers. He finds Gideon hiding from the enemy, the lesser son of a lesser family of the lesser tribe in all of Israel. He calls him a mighty warrior, sends him to battle and says the first group's way too large. You got to cut it down, sends him, comes back, says, no, your group is way, way too big still. Gives him a few hundred guys, arms them with a torch and a clay jar and they go out and defeat the Midianites. Why? So that when they defeated the Midianites, everyone would know it was God. The problem is, their hearts were so dull, they still exalted Gideon. Let me share it this way. I was talking to a medical missionary years and years ago. He was, at that time, a very old man. I was younger. 
Um, and he told me something that was so wise. He, he was a medical doctor, he was an academic, he taught at the medical school, he was very distinguished. Um, and he said to me, you know, he said, I live among those who think the world is secular and materialistic. And he says, Paul, he goes, so let's say we're in a tribal situation and a man's daughter becomes a tribal man, becomes, the daughter becomes sick, uh, convulsing, all sorts of strange things happening. And we observe this man, he goes out and he grabs a chicken. He goes out into the a sacred place in the jungle and he cuts the chicken's head off and sprinkles the chicken's blood all over a rock. He said the secular man looks at that and says that poor, pitiful, uneducated, indigenous man, he has such a wrong view of reality. And this doctor who was a professor, a medical professor, he said, you know what, Paul? He has a clearer view of reality than the secular man, the sociologist and the doctor that's criticizing him. He has a better view of the way things really are in this world. It's just that he doesn't have the right response. There is a spiritual element. I believe that in the end we are going to see it was far greater in influence and power than anything we ever imagined. And the only way to fight it. Biblical preaching, intercessory prayer and a godly life. The very things that most men in the ministry are neglectful of. Are neglectful of. Those are the weapons of our warfare. Well, what I would like to do is we'll conclude uh, right now and with prayer. And then if you're up for it, I'd like to do another session today, if you have time. Uh, those of you who do not can sign off and you can look at the recording later if you desire. But I feel like we need to go forward uh, with this text. It's so very important. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. And I pray, dear God, that you would use what has been preached for the benefit, dear God, of your people, for your ministers. In Jesus' name.